Chapter 19 of The Brighton Boys in the Radio Service. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Clifton. The Brighton Boys in the Radio Service by James R. Driscoll. Chapter 19 Turning the Tables. To Jerry laying there half frozen, stiff in every joint and scarcely daring to move for fear of making some sound that might not only divulge his presence and result in his own capture but also prevent the escape of slim it seemed that never did it take men so long to eat a meal and as they ate his own appetite became ravenous the cruelest punishment of all was to lie there half starved and hear them vulgarly smacking their lips over the warmed-up remains of a chicken undoubtedly filched from a countryside barnyard but, at last, after what seemed to Jerry to have been hours of feasting, they did finish. With a derisive laugh, the German lieutenant gathered all the bones from every other tin plate and shoved them with mock courtesy toward Slim. The latter was biding his time, and his courage increased by knowing that his friend was close by, refused to get angry. He merely waved the plate aside. Their stomachs filled, the Germans almost immediately began to think about sleep, in truth, they all looked as though they had been up most of the night before, as probably they had. One of them, a mere youth, certainly not yet out of his teens, and the youngest in the party yawned. The lieutenant saw it, and in a fit of apparently unreasonable anger said in his own native tongue, So, you want to serve notice that you desire sleep? Very well. You shall do sentinel duty, and all night, and mind that you do not sleep. A pitiful look came over the boy's face, but without a word he saluted, and departed to the circle of outer shadows to take up his long and tedious vigil. Jerry felt genuinely sorry for him, but he sincerely hoped that the officer would not change his mind or relent. He knew that the youth could not possibly stay awake the whole night through. Half an hour later the other four Germans were conducting a spirited rivalry in snoring, and Slim, also to all appearances, was fast asleep. Not daring to move, Jerry kept his eyes constantly upon the young sentry. Frequently he yawned. Once or twice he stopped uncertainly before a stump, and seemed about to sit down, and then started on again about his monotonous beat, but his step was wavering, his eyes were heavy, and Jerry knew it was only a question of time, a comparatively short time, when nature would conquer, and the sentinel, too, would sleep. Had he been able to bring himself to it, he could have shot the sentry and killed the others as they slept, before they could even have reached their weapons, but he could not do that. Better the other way, he told himself, even though it carried a greater risk. And finally his own vigil was rewarded. The sentinel placed two or three more pieces of wood upon the fire, stood for a few moments within its genial warmth, looked dully at the others soundly sleeping, and then crossed to the stump and sat down. His rifle was on the ground beside him, his elbows rested upon his knees, and his chin in his hands. Presently his eyelids drooped and closed, his head, and then his whole body sagged forward. He awakened with a start, and changed his place to another tree more within the shadows. There he was able to lean back in a more comfortable position, and soon his heavy, even breathing assured Jerry that nature had indeed won. Softly, without so much as a sound, he rose to his hands and knees. He tossed a pebble which hit Slim upon the hand. The latter turned his head ever so slightly and gazed fixedly in Jerry's direction. 
Finally, his decided wink indicated that he had made out the form of his friend. Still upon all fours, and feeling every inch of the way, Jerry retraced his steps over the ledge. Quietly he slid down to the lower level and took a wide circle about the little camp, finally closing in near to where the sleeping sentry sat. Deftly and silently he pulled the latter's gun from where it lay beside him. This he carried over to near where the horses were corralled. Slim was watching his every move, but awaited Jerry's signal before he stirred. Jerry then returned, and ever so gently that the sentry never made a movement, lifted his loaded revolver from its holster. With this he tiptoed to Slim, placed the weapon in his hand, and with a gesture bade him to rise. They were now masters of the situation, but Jerry did not want to take any chances. Two of the Germans were lying in such a position that he could get the revolvers also. They did not carry rifles. This he accomplished after having stationed Slim in the shadows at such a point of vantage that he could cover all the Boches should they awaken. One of the additional guns he gave to Slim, the other he kept himself. Thus, doubly armed, they stepped over to the sleeping sentry, and while Slim pointed his two guns at the others to prevent any hostilities upon their part should they arise, Jerry shook and awakened the bewildered sentry. As he faced the two revolvers, and the change situation suddenly dawned upon him, the young German's expression was pathetic. Apparently he was too stunned to speak a word. Jerry motioned him to take position just behind the sleepers, which he did. With Slim standing behind him, and their four revolvers pointed menacingly at the Germans, Jerry kicked the lieutenant upon the sole of the boot. The latter aroused angrily, and was about to give vent to his feelings when he looked into the barrels of the automatics. His exclamation was one of complete chagrin. Slim stepped over and extracted his revolver, which he dropped in his own pocket. By the same process, the other armed Bosch was awakened, and in the same way he was disarmed. Then, with his foot, Jerry jabbed the remaining two back to consciousness. "'You are our prisoners,' Jerry informed them in their own language. "'One hostile move from any of you, and you'll be shot.' Forming them into pairs, and purposely leaving the sentinel as the single one of the party and in the lead, Jerry ordered them to walk to where the horses were tethered. He made two of the men put saddles and bridles upon the animals, and then compelled them to mount as they were paired. The lieutenant and one of his men upon one of the horses, two others upon another, and the sentry alone upon another, but carrying a good supply of rations, while Slim and he each had an animal to carry themselves, the wireless and other paraphernalia when they should pick that up. Thus, with hardly a dozen words having been spoken, they came through the ravine, and at forced speed struck out across the level ground towards the mountain from which Jerry and Slim had come that morning. You, the lieutenant, hissed between his teeth at the sentinel as they came side by side. What were you doing when the second American arrived? Asleep, eh? I came up behind him. He never had a chance, for I did not make a sound, Jerry interposed in German, before the young Bosch could even make an involuntary admission. As they approached the base of the mountain, where they had parted from Lieutenant Mackinson, Joe, and Frank early that day, the moon reached its zenith, and its beams reflected upon the white ground, making the night almost as light as day. Two hours later, they were upon the identical spot from which they had wireless headquarters in the morning. It was midnight now, as two of the Germans, working under Jerry's orders, while Slim kept a weather eye on the others, set up the pack set. Jerry worked the key half-dozen times, and then got an almost immediate response— the first query after identified himself was, "'This is Joe. Where are you?' "'I just got back to where he left you this morning,' Jerry ticked off into the air, bringing in a German lieutenant and four of his men as prisoners. Should arrive by daylight, as we have horses.' 
Great, was Joe's response. Have a letter from Brighton and fine news. We'll make your report. And the pack set was put back in its compartment case, and, paired off as before, the journey was resumed. Say, said Jerry, as they urged their horses down the side of the mountain, leading to fairly level ground all the way to camp, I'm hungry enough to eat dog meat, but I guess we can hold out now until we reach our lines. Yes, I suppose so, Slim answered. But how'd you like to have some sausage, some plum pudding, and— Don't, pleaded Jerry. That idea is too much. My stomach is accusing me of gross carelessness now. Wonder what's in that letter from Brighton and who wrote it, said some, glad to change the subject and forgot his own hunger. Can't imagine, but my own curiosity has been to whether the fine news Joe mentioned comes from there or refers to something at headquarters. And so, sore, tired, and hungry, but happy with all, they continued on. The moon waned and set, and tradition proved itself. It became darkest just before dawn. Wait, said Jerry, just at the stage of the journey, and he jumped from his horse to recover something he had seen the German lieutenant drop. It proved to be a packet of papers bearing the official German seal. Aha! Jerry cried, riding up the officer and thrusting the documents out before him. So you thought to get rid of them, eh? Well, we'll just take these along to headquarters, too. They may contain something of interest to our commanders, yes? The lieutenant gave an ugly, menacing grunt, but refused to say a word. Daylight came, and with a clear view of the American lines, a quarter hour later they saw two horsemen coming toward them. Slim examined them carefully with his glasses. The lieutenant and Frank, he announced, guessed Joe was still on duty. And Joe was. He was just relaying to the commander of the American forces in France orders forwarded from London, and they were of the greatest importance to the three boys from Brighton. End of chapter 19